listening to WP Radio, a podcast from the OIAA, and I'm your host, Terry Doherty. In each episode, I have in-depth interviews with industry experts and get to know them better, along with finding out their perspective on everything in the industry. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. On today's episode of WP Radio, we have Dana Schools from Archon Engineering, and she comes to the podcast. We talk to her about growing up and what it's like to be a female in a male-dominated industry and being a millennial transitioning into the workforce. It's uh, Terry with WP Radio, and today I have Dana Scholes on, and she's from Archon Forensic Engineers. Um, Dana, thank you very much for being on the show today. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Um, Dana, kind of speaking with... um, people in the industry and we're kind of learning that, you know, there's a lot of millennials coming into the industry now. And, uh, you're the first millennial that I've met that actually has an engineering degree. So, uh, I'm kind of interested to find out kind of how you got here as a millennial and a little bit about Archon as well. And just kind of give me, um, a little bit overview. You're 25 years old. Yeah. So I'm a uh, 25 year old years old. And yes, I am a millennial. Uh, My father was actually in the insurance industry for about 25 years. And he had a chemical engineering background, uh, as well as an MBA. And then my mother, uh, she has a master's in psychology and an MBA degree as well. Um, Going right back, I started in French immersion. And from there, I lived in England for about three years, and then returned to Oakville for high school at Appleby College. So when I was growing up, I would play with the odd doll here and there, but I actually was mostly into Hot Wheels and Lincoln Logs. So that's funny, because actually on the drive out here today, I actually had to ask what Lincoln Logs were. So, and you were telling me as well, they're basically Lego, but old school Lego. Yeah. So I didn't even remember what they were. So again, that must be a millennial thing, because I remember Lego. I don't remember (laughs) Lincoln Logs. All right. So... Let's talk a little bit earlier, you know, a little bit else. So you lived in England, mm-hmm. and uh, you did that because your dad moved there, or your yeah, family so moved my, there. Yeah, so my dad was there for his for work. So we were there as expats, uh, and I went to an American school, and it was all through the expat kind of society there. And did you like England? I loved it. It was a stunning experience. Uh, tons of traveling. You know, Europe is right next to you, and. Just a, a different experience on the whole. But you were pretty young, though, right? Uh, between 9 and 11 was about the ages I was there. So not old enough to take a flight on your own. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Because we were just there, you know, I've been there the last few years back and forth. And just flying, it's like $16 to fly return trip, you know, locally from England to Ireland or yeah. into France. It's crazy. Oh, it's amazing. And it, it gives you so many opportunities. Once you get there... You can go anywhere for such a low price. So what's Appleby College? What's that? So Appleby College, it's it's in Oakville, and it's it's a private school. Uh, okay. It goes actually from grade 7 to 12. Okay. Um, but it's considered, all of it's considered kind of high school. Um, we have exams starting in seventh grade. Uh, it's also an e-school, so we all have laptops. Our textbooks are on laptops. And uh, from ninth grade to twelfth grade, there's boarding. Did and you stay there? Uh, in 12th grade, you have to stay there to graduate. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's, it's, they call it a preparatory school for university, so it eases the transition there. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and where'd you go to university? So I went to Western University. Okay. Uh, very proud Western alum. Uh, took mechanical engineering there. Okay. And uh, graduated a few years ago. Very cool. And what did you do after university? Did you go travel like every other millennial? <laughs> I didn't travel, actually. Uh, <laughs> 
living in England, I got a lot of traveling in there, so I wasn't uh, hugely into the traveling right when I graduated. I did take a year off, and it was actually to work with some horses and go to the Royal Winter Fair. Okay. So, yeah, I saw that when we were uh, before in a little bit of prep work that you actually you train horses. I do. So I actually I just bought a young horse in November. He's uh, nine months old now. So I can't do a whole lot with him yet, but I'm training him to be in the show jumping ring. Did you ride horses as a child yourself? Yeah, so both my parents are horseback riders. Okay. Um, my mom is a Western rider, and my father, he was actually on the Canadian Olympic pentathlon team as a reserve. So horsing runs in the family. Wow, okay. Yeah, so I got the, I got the gene, and uh, I've been doing it basically my whole life now. Wow, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. So this is your own horse that you're training. Is somebody else going to ride it? Uh, no, hopefully I'll do the riding as well. Oh, okay. Um, I will have trainers to help me along the way, but I'll. Uh, most of it's kind of on my own. And you've got to break the horse in or something, I do, right? yeah. He's, uh, he's not saddle broke. He's very basic training. Um, What's his name? Mui. Okay. <laughs> it right. means uh, it actually means handsome in Dutch. Oh, okay. Very so. cool. And you play hockey as well in your spare time. Yep, I do. So uh, I play with uh, an adult rookie league. Okay. Um, you know, it's co-ed, no contact, lots of fun, good exercise. Very cool. Yeah. All right. So um, tell me about you breaking into the insurance industry because that's got to be different, especially, if, well, one, as an, a female engineer has got to be tough enough and then the whole millennial um, you know, with quotation air quotes around it, um, doing it. So it's got to be a little different. So tell me, you know, how that is, how that's been. So I really think uh, just kind of right off the bat, uh, insurance, you said, you know, being a female in engineering, we're a little more rare, but actually females in the insurance is more common. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I really, uh, I think that's great. Um, it it kind of feels like the industry is a little further along and, and having, other females kind of being able to work with you, it kind of feels, makes you feel less uncommon. Yeah, I think uh, the insurance side, I think, is dominated by females. The insurance yeah. side, whereas the engineering and all of the other specialty or, you know, specialty markets like our engineers and our lawyers and stuff is more male-dominated. So it's really the, you know, the other way. Oh, so. yeah, definitely. And, and I really feel it helps when I'm speaking with male adjusters because... Uh, it's noticeable that they actually put more faith in me as a female engineer. Um, I know that sounds very old school, but, uh, you know, unfortunately in engineering, we're not as well recognized because we're a little more rare. Well, it's newer, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, and we were talking before, again, before we got on the air about how many real female engineers that I even, you know, that I know personally, and, and it's really limited. Um, and yourself, you said you, there's not that many. Yeah, I'm well, I'm the only female engineer in this office at Archon. Uh, there is another female. She's a physicist. Um, but across the other forensic engineering offices, I can only recount maybe two or three others. So let's talk about that for a little bit. So in your um, at school, in your program, how many females were in the engineering program? So in the program, I think when I started at Western, it was maybe 13 or 14 percent. Um, the average across kind of all the schools, because it does vary, was maybe 16 to 17. Um, and I, I was actually looking at some, some stats the other day, just preparing for this, and uh, it was about 20% in 2017. In engineering? In engineering, yes. No, 
Okay. So, but let's talk about your program specifically. How mm-hmm. many people were in your program year one? Year one. Oh, just on the total? Yeah. How many people in your program? Um, so year one, everyone's together. Yeah. So it's probably 300, 400 people. How many of them were female? Not many. <laughs> 10? 20? Um, in mechanical. So once we separated the next year, there were maybe seven, seven or eight of us out of a hundred. And how many of them finished? Six of us. Yeah, it's pretty staggering numbers, eh? Yeah. Wow, that's like 6%. Yeah. Yeah, wow, okay. All right, so let's let's talk a little bit about millennials. Um, you know, again, you're when I think of millennials, I think of, you know, or everybody seems to think of, you know, the guy with the hair buns sitting in Starbucks <laughs> on his laptop, going to be the next tech billionaire. But that's not true, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I have two millennials at home and both are driven, yeah. like really, really ambitious and they do wonderful things. And I mean, so I have a different thought process. I mean, they do do things differently than I think. Yep. Um, or, you know, they, they don't go to an office every day. Well, my son doesn't. He is on his computer, but he works for a company. Uh, he's a copywriter um, as well as a professional racer, but he is a copywriter for a company in Minnesota. Uh, and he does all his work here in Canada. It's just, it's unbelievable. So, I mean, it's the whole ability to be able to do your work from anywhere in the world. And that's a little different from, you know, when I think of when I started work, you had to be there at nine, you punched in at nine, you worked, you had your 15 minute break, then you had lunch, then you had your next 15 minute break, and then you punched out at five. That isn't the case anymore, right? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct there. And it's, uh, it's actually nice to hear that your son is able to work you know, remotely. And I think that's, that's a really important factor that's coming from the millennials. Um, you know, they say money can't buy happiness, but, um, I like millennials like to spend money, but it's more so <laughs> in, uh, I think, uh, you know, experiences and hobbies and we like to do things and you like, we're busy, we're driven and we really like to stay active and, um, you know, food and socializing with our friends. And that unfortunately all costs, a fair amount of money. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then also, you know, millennials, I find, are living at home longer. Uh, yes. That's myself included. I still live at home. Um, and that, you know, at the end of the day, it's because moving out would mean that I'd have to give up riding horses because that's quite an expensive hobby. For sure. Um, so also, you're putting other things in front of moving out. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I feel I could I could live in a house, but I wouldn't have any money left to do anything else. Um, it sounds very European as opposed to how North America is, right? Yeah. So Europeans typically live at home longer. They, you know, they they have a more of a family unit. We kind of be we're kind of moving that direction. Yeah, definitely. And you know, millennials are they're buying cars later and they're settling down later. And you're right, it's all it's all kind of that European style. Um, but that's that's how we can afford our luxuries. And even you know, we have cell phones, laptops, TVs, gaming systems, and avocados and quinoa and starbucks yeah yeah those three things just put the hair on the back of my head is avocados quinoa and starbucks uh yeah ten dollar coffees um but yeah no i mean and and it's funny that you say those three things because before my kids kind of in their later teens i never thought of going to starbucks eating quinoa or buying an avocado and those are like the three main things that millennials talk about right yeah it, it almost becomes a, a social thing for us because you know you you make avocado toast and then you post it on instagram and 
And yeah, that's, that's our way of socializing almost. Yeah, you guys don't talk a lot on the phone, but you text a lot. I mean, Tons. it's just a different yep. way of using the phone mm-hmm, and different technology, right? So there's there's sharing, there's apps, all the different things that, you know, <clears throat> my generation is doing, but it's it's later, right? Like, so Facebook, you guys were on Facebook earlier, and now that parents are on it, you've stopped using it. <laughs> you've moved to Instagram, Snapchat, um, you know, all the different other apps that are out there that I don't even know about. Um, but I mean, those are the things how you guys socialize or stay connected. Whereas when it, I was growing up, it was on a telephone, literally on a landline with a long cord in your room talking to somebody or face to face, but that's not the same way. No. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Cause I mean, I, I don't remember the last time I picked up the landline in my house. Um, and a lot of people don't even have them, right? No, I know a lot of my, my friends just, you know, they've moved out and they didn't bother getting a landline. Call me on my cell phone. Yeah, we only have a landline for my parents and my wife's parents. No one else calls it. Yeah. Right? No one else knows the number. So, yeah, it's kind of, and I think when they pass on, we'll get rid of it. But for now, we <laughs> keep it for those, for that. So, I mean, that's, that's what we're with. Now, let's talk about work, because work for a millennial is totally different, or the, just how it's set up, in my opinion. It's, I mean, you guys will work till four in the morning one night, and then not get up till noon, and it's just this whole different environment, like this whole different mindset, right? Um, so talk to me about that. Is, that. is that able to be done here at Archon, and you guys, have you guys kind of embraced the millennial? So at Archon, it is still, like you said, it's kind of more the nine to five mentality. A lot of that is because we have, we have clients and we're kind of dependent on other companies and meeting with them during daylight hours. You know, you can't, we can't be going to site in the middle of the night, but um, I do agree with you. You know, the flexibility of, of work is really, it's really going to be valuable. Um, like I said before, you know, millennials like to travel and do activities and, and having that nine to five all the time really it takes away from being able to kind of do this or that at times during the day. And we're more willing, I think, to break up the work. So you can do a couple of hours, do a hobby, do a couple of hours. Yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. And for the older generation, they find that very frustrating or it's just because they're not used to it, right? Yeah, yeah, and I think, you know, it's just a different way of doing things. And I don't think either way is right or either way is wrong. It's just kind of a different style, but it's kind of... It's unique right now. Yeah, and I think people need to get used to it, right? It's like my parents said, you know, my music was loud and obnoxious, and I say the same thing about my kids for the most part. I mean, and I'm sure their kids are going to say the same thing about their music, right? They're going to say it about their kids, and it's on and on. So it's just getting used to it, right? Yeah, and I I really think uh, one big thing about the millennials is we're really here, um, you know, we work to live, and it's not so much live to work. So we like to all of the extras tend to come before work. And that's why I think separating it out and being able to make a bit more of our own schedule can really be a valuable um, asset. Well, that I think it also plays to the stress factor too, right? So we work, uh, you know, as a non-millennial or a Gen X or whatever I am, um, you work and you keep working, but you're stressed. Whereas I know when... I'm dealing with millennials, they just go, yeah, no, I've had enough for today, I'll deal with it later on. And they go and do something to de-stress themselves, and then come back, and they're fresh, and they're probably better for it, and their work's probably better for it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's days definitely in the office when I've got a lot of work to do, and I, I would love to just go out for a run for an hour or so, and clear my head and come back, and then 
you know, start start fresh. And why don't you? I, I, I don't know. I guess that's a good question, but I, I mean, I, I want to leave it for. Ah, so. so you can go play with your horse. Yeah, you bet. Okay, so there's <laughs> there's a reason to it. Okay, um, so, so let's talk about Archon as well. Like, let's talk about you guys. Um, been around for a long time. Yeah, right? very long time. And uh, you've only been here a couple of years. Yeah, I'll just be coming up to my second year very soon. So I I understand it's been around since 1965. Yes. All right, and uh, you've got. Um, you know, a couple of different divisions or specialty divisions. So let's talk, there's civil and structural. Yeah, so we have uh, civil and structural, fire and electrical. Um, we've got a mechanical department and then also uh, collision reconstruction. Okay. And and, sorry. No, no, go ahead. And where do you fit in there? So I'm a mechanical engineer, so I'm in that mechanical department. Okay. Um, and then also uh, we do metallurgical as well. And do you do metallurgical or are you just more um, mechanical? Sometimes I do dabble in the metallurgical side, but my background's more in mechanical, so I like to stick to that side, but I will I will uh, deviate if I if need be. So tell me a little bit about the mechanical. What would your day be like if you were out on a site? Tell me a little bit about that. Um, so our sites actually, they vary a lot. Um, you know, sometimes I might be out looking at a toilet hose, um, and it could be with at a home or it could be in a lab and then the next day I might find myself uh, with my head inside a commercially sized spinning wine vat so it uh, it really varies day to day which keeps it interesting yeah I'd say <laughs> <laughs> all right and you're an EIT yes so is that an engineer in training so it actually it used to be called an engineer in training it's okay. now very recently they've changed it to an engineering intern okay um, it's essentially because uh, they don't want people to mistake that we are engineers quite yet because we we haven't been given our, our stamp and your seal our seal yes uh, and we can't sign off on anything yet so somebody co-authors your reports yes and reviews them yeah that is a a professional engineer png correct right? yeah okay um and and it how long does it take you to get that to that level so uh I have taken uh, something, it's a professional practice exam, we okay. call it. Uh, so I've taken that already. Not everyone takes it right away, um, but it's a law and ethics exam. It's some essay questions, and uh, it's, uh, we actually take the course in school, so it's easier to take it when we get out of school. Um, and then after that, uh, or before, we have to do four years of experience, uh, but that experience has to apply these five pillars of engineering, um, through the PEO, and then they kind of judge if it's acceptable or not. So is that four years of practical experience? Yes. And is that under a specific engineering firm? Uh, it just has to be under a professional engineer, and okay. then they'll sign off uh, once you write your essays. They'll sign off saying, yes, they were here, and you know, I agree with what they've said about what they were doing. Okay. <clears throat> and what are those five pillars you've talked about? Uh, so that's application of theory. Uh, practical experience, management of engineering, communication skills, and uh, the awareness of social implications of engineering. Okay. So it's a, a broad range of things That's we a big have to spectrum. think about. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you've got to do all sorts of different stuff, and I'm sure it must be changing. So as much as you're done school, there's got to be courses and stuff that you guys as engineers or EITs are doing. 
Mm-hmm. Am I correct in that? Um, yeah, we do have, I mean, we do have courses more specifically here. We have like fire investigator courses and that can kind of broaden our abilities of sites we can go to. And I know the other male EIT here, he's done his fire investigator course. So he's now able to go to those sites. And so he's a certified fire and explosions investigator? He is, yes. All right. Um, myself, I'm just, I'm just doing um, actually project management course, just kind of on the side. Uh, I do hope to get in and do my MBA degree uh, eventually at some point, kind of follow my f- parents' footsteps there. Okay. But that's just... Uh, so your main <coughs> focus is mechanical? Yes. Okay. And you must like it, obviously. I do, yes. Yeah. And <clears throat> and I also read somewhere that you wanted to be an astronaut. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, so when growing up, I've always wanted to be an astronaut. Um, that's what led me to mechanical engineering. Um, I would like to go to the moon um, or the ISS. But um, yeah, that's always kind of, that's always been my big dream. You can just buy a seat once you make enough money being an engineer I, now, right? That might be the plan these days. Yeah, you can go up in an Uber or something. I'm sure they'll have them. <laughs> an Uber, uh, Uber, Uber spaceship? Th- yeah, I'm sure it'll be available soon. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Um, so let's, uh, let's talk about the boys club. The boys club, yes. Um, so I think engineering is traditionally a bit more of a boys club. Um, and like, you know, like we said before, it's just, it's just been more traditionally a male dominated industry. Um, but I, I definitely feel that this, this type of attitude still lingers around, um, and it can be more prevalent in, in the older generation. Um, it's, it's tough to deal with. Um, I'll tell you, uh, was it tough to get a job? Yes. Was it? Yeah, it was, um. I, I don't know if it was tough to get a job because of the boys club mentality or more so when I graduated, the oil and gas industry wasn't doing very well. Um, I, I couldn't tell you what kind of played a part. Um, Were you not in your field for a long time or did it take a bit to get to where you wanted in your field? Um, since I took the year off, I think that helped. It take, took a lot of pressure off of finding something right away. So I was able to while I was taking that year off, I was also still looking for a job. Um, and it was, it was lucky that I found Archon actually almost right at the one-year mark. Wow, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. You were going to tell me a little bit, of, like a, a scenario of what, you know, some of the issues you were having or may have had. Yeah, so just actually it's after, after I've started with Archon. Um, you know, I'm on site a lot and dealing with a whole range of different people and different services, but... Um, just a little, a little story that kind of gives you in, insight into kind of what I get a bit from that boys club mentality. Um, I was actually on site, uh, at some point in my past two years and I won't go into specifics. Sure. Um, but a man said to me, uh, he said, I don't mean to be rude, but you are a pretty female. What are you doing in this industry? And did he mean insurance or an engineer? As an engineer. Really? Mm-hmm. And did you answer him? Did you, did you have a really... <laughs> Quick well, I'm I'm really response. I'm not that witty, <laughs> so unfortunately I just kind of I laughed it off and walked away and was like, oh, okay, shocked. Yeah, it was truly I was I was absolutely shocked. Um, but if you know I'm, at the end of the day I like math and science and I'm good at it and I think that has nothing to do with my looks or my gender, and I kind of wish I had said that at the time, but. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you may come across. It's a small industry. 
So if you've met him once, you'll meet him <laughs> again. Meet him again, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so let's talk about the different opportunities that there are for um, female millennial engineers. Do you find that now that you're in the industry, that um, do you want to find or do you want to help women engineers get into the industry, like the insurance industry, or or is there anything out there that you can do? or that other ladies can do or, you know, kind of give me some information on that. Um, what do you think on that, that side of things? Yeah, there's actually, um, I was contacted recently, uh, from, uh, a lady at Western and there's actually a lot of campaigns now. Uh, one right now is hashtag press for progress. And it's really about trying to improve the presence of women in engineering. Um, I think a big thing is, um, like mentors in the industry. Um, it's really tough right now, and this is this is something my female engineering friends and I actually agreed on, um, could be improved, is that you don't see a lot of females in pow- positions of power. Um, and I don't think that's actually strictly to engineering. I think that's kind of across the board, but it would be, it would be really nice to have a female engineering mentor kind of directly in the industry to kind of guide me along a little bit. Um, and I know there is, there is another lady at a, another forensic engineering firm, um, which is great, but it was, uh, it's, it would be nice to see more of that. Um, but you could be that mentor. I could. Yes. And I, I, hopefully I'll get there. Um, I know anytime like a female engineer comes to me, I'm more than happy to lend a helping hand any way I can. And I don't think that's, um, specific to this industry. Like I'll help them get where they need to be as much as I can. If, you know, if it's oil and gas or if it's chemical processing, um, I think we're kind of all, we're all there for each other and we like to stick out for each other. Yeah. Do you find that you don't, or not with Archon, but uh, adjusters, I guess, well, you've got a lot of female adjusters, so it's not going to be that noticeable, but do you get, you know, a lot of pushback because you're a female on the on claims? I would say not from the adjusters. Um, I don't get pushback. It's more It's more so when I'm on sites and stuff and maybe not so much the adjuster sides of things, but, um, you know, other other professions or industries. So do they, is it age or is it your sex? Do you think it's more that you're a female or that you're young? Um, <clears throat> I'd like to think it's because I'm young, but um, I actually... Uh, I was discussing this topic with um, some of my other friends. I actually sent them a message on Facebook, as millennials do. Yeah. Um, and I asked a few of my uh, these girls that I went to school with regarding their experiences. And I'll just give you a little background about them. Sure. So uh, Olivia and Sharon, they're chemical engineers in processing. Uh, Jess, she works in oil and gas as a civil engineer. And Claire works in mechanical designing as a mechanical engineer, or I should be saying EITs. Um, And all of us could actually recount similar stories as to the one I told you earlier. And yet we all work in very different industries and graduated from different programs. Um, Also, Olivia had mentioned a story to me about a situation that she encountered where she attended a site with a fellow male EIT and he is of a similar experience level and age. And she recounted how questions and eye contact was never really directed at her. Uh, also, the contractors would kind of second guess her abilities a lot, but they never second guessed his. 
So it's it sucks. More that you yeah, think. Yeah. I, I do think so. Wow. Um Okay. Um that kind of threw me for a loop there. Yeah. So it, it, and again, it's and I guess I just I've never had that issue. Um, but again, I don't run into a lot of female engineers. I got to be honest. Mm-hmm. I like I said, I only know two in the in, well, two engineers, and one of them's in the industry who since left. Yeah. And the other one is in a totally different industry. But again, she's the head of an entire department for engineering. Oh, and that's like, awesome. She's got like thirty guys that report to her. Yeah. And they travel all around the world, but she's the the buck stops with her. Um, so it's kind of interesting. Um, uh, so I never thought of that in that way. Um, so yeah, no, that's, that's got to change obviously. Yeah. It's, it's definitely got to change. Um, and I know I read on PO recently that less than 13% of practicing licensed engineers are women. So it is, it is a low number, but it's just the, the fact that they're not going into the field. Right. Yeah. And I think uh, also, um, like at the age of 30, I've heard it's dropped off, which is also about the time that women become pregnant and start families. And I think a lot of them aren't returning to the industry. Oh, okay. That's interesting too. So they, they may start off as an engineer mm-hmm. and start a family and just never go back. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, that's different. And again, interesting. Um, is there anything you think we can do to change that? And when um, I say we, I mean you. <laughs> I think it's I think it's awareness. I mean, yeah. I think that's that's step one. Uh, I have heard of girls actually avoiding engineering because they're scared of that boys club mentality um, because it is so highly talked about. And it's true. I guess that's that's the other hard part. Uh, it is getting better. Um, I, ha- I do have to give a shout out. I do have a lot of male um, engineering friends and they're great. Uh, they treat me with respect and they treat everybody with respect like my other female friends. And I think that's a good that's a good start. How many of your profs were females in the engineering? One, maybe. Uh, I mean, how many did you have? I, I very few. Uh, one or two. No, um, but how many profs did you have in oh. your four years there? How many different profs? Uh, Twenty plus. And one was a female. Yeah. Wow. There was a uh, one lady there who was she wasn't a prof, and I don't believe she's an engineer, but she was in the faculty. Yeah. And she was actually a fantastic mentor uh, for us. Just knowing kind of like she's, she was in the faculty, so she kind of dealt with the same attitudes. And that was that was really nice. But prof wise, very few. Wow. So it's even right back to schooling. Right back to school. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Davis Martindale, the accountants with personality. Reclaim your time and resolve your insurance claims with our new online calculators. A fast and easy way to calculate IRBs, interest, net present value, and total payments. Check it out at www.davismartindale.com. Now let's get back to the show. So let's talk about um, <clears throat> Archon specifically. And uh, you've got a lot of different heads or group uh, to deal with here. So civil and structural. So for all those people that don't know a lot about Archon, why don't you give us a little background about all the different areas and all the different key people we can we can talk with? Okay, yeah. So uh, so like you said, civil and structural is, uh, we've got Sean Day, Jay, sorry, Sean Jay. He's our president here. Um, and, you know, they'll do anything from building failure, failures and structural design analysis. So we're talking building envelopes and that kind of stuff? Yeah, or even, you know, even just homes. 
if your porch one day falls apart, they'll come check it out and see kind of maybe what happened or if only a portion's fallen, is it safe? You know, is a house safe for the homeowner to return? And it's, it's really about uh, making sure that things are safe for, for the community and the public or, or just a homeowner. Okay. So we do failure analysis and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay. And that's, that's kind of across the board. I mean, that's really, um, you go into fire and electrical. And again, if a house is house fire, you want to make sure if it's, it's safe to return or safe for work to be done. And also kind of where the fire may have originated um, to prevent future incidents. Yeah. Now, um, so your fire and electrical, who's that headed up by? So we have uh, Stephen Hawken there, and then we also have Steve Probst as well. Okay. And uh, let's talk about uh, collision and uh, <clears throat> personal injury. Yep. So that's headed up by Alan Morris. Um, and he's a doctor, is he not? He is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah he's a very smart fellow, and um, he also has a background in biomechanical. Um, so he can assess um, injuries in from these accidents. So if if a person was injured, kind of was it was it an injury caused by the accident due to kind of like the mechanics of your body, or um, or you know what what happened in the accident to affect them, and then also he also does like slips, trips, and falls, um, and again all kind of was was a ramp to code was a step to code and would that have prevented an injury down the road? Yeah, I actually had him come and speak at the Thousand Island Adjusters Association and he actually spoke about a, autonomous vehicles, which was a really interesting and it's a kind of new topic for a lot of people and to understand where we're at with autonomous vehicles and you know how it's changed from just in the last 10 years to to where we're at now and where it's going to be in the next 10 years and the fact that he says you know by 2040 we're going to be mostly all autonomous vehicles or at least all electric i think is what he said we're going to be yeah no fossil fuels by f 2040 oh yeah it's it's crazy how the way that that's going it's i can't even believe it and, and they say we're more technologically technologically advanced as a millennial yeah and even at autonomous vehicles is it's crazy to think of. Yeah, I was at the auto show yesterday. It was kind of funny in Toronto, and I couldn't believe the amount of electric vehicles that were being promoted uh, everywhere and in well, every brand, too. Like entry-level vehicles right up to, you know, your Porsche, your Land Rover, Mercedes. Everybody had an, auton or, um, an electric vehicle of mm -hmm. some form. Yeah. Right? So, you know, it used to be only the high-end cars, your Teslas, and, and that were electric but everybody's bringing out an electric vehicle i think they see the writing on the wall yeah and i think it, it is really nice to see um just re in regards to the environment i mean that's kind of the way pe people are starting to think about it and i, I really do like that because it's you're kind of protecting i mean i guess in terms of millennials like this is our planet and we've got another 80 years maybe to live on it that's so, a very millennial thing too, right? <laughs> Electric cars. Yeah. yeah. And like, you know, green bins and recycling and Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to landfills and everything in one garbage can. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's not really millennial. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, no, no. And I and I thought it was quite interesting the to see the amount of young people 
out looking at cars. I know they're not buying them because they're pretty expensive <laughs> right now for the most part, but uh, that we're really interested in. I, was, I, I went around with intention knowing that I was going to meet you today to actually see how many green type cars there was at the auto show. So it was, it was really interesting. And then, and then I thought about our meeting and I thought about my kids and how important it is to them, the environment. I mean, they talk about it all the time. And I, you know, I talk about buying a big gas guzzling car <laughs> and they talk about buying a Tesla because it would be better for the environment and for their kids and their kids. And I keep saying, well, I'm not going to be here to worry about it. And they say that's the wrong attitude. So, yeah, I actually, I just, uh, I just bought a car in September and I really, really wanted an electric car, but unfortunately they're a little pricier. Yeah. Um, and because of all that horse and hockey equipment, I needed an SUV. Oh, no. <laughs> so I couldn't get the tiny little electric car, but I... What would you buy? Uh, Nissan Rogue. Okay, so mm -hmm. it's pretty fuel efficient, though, it, yeah. right? It's a little and that was, that was a big factor, too, yeah. was fuel efficiency. Yeah. It, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it, things are really changing. So tell me a little bit more about, you know, you um, and why you chose to, to come and do you know, mechanical and metallurgical. I know you said there's, uh, you want to go to space and you want to do all these things, but there's got to be more to it than that, right? Yeah, I think uh, the really nice thing about being in this industry is, um, one, it, it is, uh, it's a small industry. Um, I think forensic engineers are really good at helping each other out. There is a good support system um, in place there, just even between companies. Um, and like, so you that's mean competing firms. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I think, I think there's a really good, um, camaraderie. Yeah. Um, even kind of, even outside of my office, like I can go to previous colleagues or, or on site, you tend to see, you know, you tend to see the same people cause it's another mechanical engineer looking at whatever you're looking at. And, uh, I really find those, those professional friendships, um, it's helped me feel more comfortable and it's actually, it's actually increased kind of like my knowledge and I can learn from them. And they might say like, hey, like, take a look at that corner over there. Like, you missed it. And I'll be like, oh, okay, okay. Okay. Um, that way I don't have to go back the next day. Yeah, no, that's funny that you say that because, I mean, we talk, I know we have a unit where I work and uh, we talk about, uh, you know, getting along with colleagues and people, not your own current current colleagues but colleagues from other insurance companies and what's really important for us is being able to you know agree to disagree and uh, there's got to be a lot of give and take and you've got to be very civil to each other because you're going to see those same people claim after claim after claim and if you can't get along I mean you're just starting off on the wrong foot every time right yeah absolutely and and the nice thing too is all of our work um, we are considered experts so it is unbiased so even if um, you know, even if we're competing with another forensic engineering company, it's all about what we're looking at. Um, we don't come to opinions. So, you know, if there's a rip in the piece of paper, there's a rip in the piece of paper and you can't really spin it so much. Yeah. I always say evidence doesn't lie, right? It stands exactly. on its own two feet. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's the great thing I think about, um, evidence is, uh, as long as it's, you know, properly looked at, it's, it stands on its own, right? I mean, a hole in a hose is a hole in a hose. Definitely, it's yeah. It's just how did it get there? Yeah, right? absolutely. What caused it? Mm -hmm. But it's still a hole in the hose. Yeah. Right? 
Um, so can you tell me uh, some cases you've done without telling me names of companies you've done before? Like, how about some interesting cases that you've handled? Well, I know the one I mentioned before, the... Uh, the wine? The wine vat. That was a fun one. Um, I think more because it was wine. Yeah, I was waiting <laughs> for that part. Yeah. So tell me about that. Um, yeah, so essentially the, the spinning wine vat stopped spinning. And then it, uh, all the wine inside went bad because it's part of their process. Okay. Um, so we kind of had to go in and decide why it stopped spinning. And it's even, you know, it can be, the answer can be so simple, but it causes so much damage. Was this a large commercial wine? Yes. So it was, uh, can't remember quite how many liters it was, but you could have, I think, like a couple hundred to a thousand bottles of wine wow. probably out of it. It was, it was very large. So did they have a business interruption loss as a result or is... Yep. Yeah. So business interruption as well. Uh, they did have a couple other vats running. Um, so at least they could continue a type of production, but it was definitely uh, lessened due to the, the loss. Yeah. And I know le- wine is uh, kind of an interesting thing. I, I know you can't, if you're commercially selling wine, you can't pour one half bottle into another one because they're actually identified by a tag marker. And that's if the wine has gone bad, they were able to identify that wine. So I know wine is a really kind of finicky kind of thing as well. So yeah. that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, was this locally or did you, did you have to fly to France to do this? Or is this I something? wish I had to fly to France. <laughs> so are we talking Niagara wine region? Yeah. Okay. Um, and how were you able to resolve it? What came out? What was the findings? That's a good question. I can't quite remember. <laughs> was there wine involved? <laughs> there might have been. <laughs> so, do you um, did it resolve itself? Were you able to put the the machine back together, or was that not the purpose? Was to get it back up and running, or were you just there to determine the failure? It was more just to determine the failure. Um, so I'm I'm not sure if they replaced it or not. I I'm trying to think now, and I think it was actually um, a maintenance a maintenance issue. Oh, okay. Um, you know something had been missed and over time it it loosened or became unscrewed slightly in that you know butterfly effect and it it can cause damage to the whole operation okay um let's talk about another part of your your job uh pipe and pressure vessel Mm -hmm. work um do you do you personally do that yourself um i do more of just the pipes right now um just because i am newer and kind of getting all the experiences under my belt um piping um in large condos is very common um failures you mean failures yes so whether that's couplings or it could be in the hvac so that's heating ventilation and cooling yeah um and that's uh those are common you know it's you get a freeze up and even freeze ups don't always happen in the winter, which is kind of a bit of a misconception there. If you have cold air going through and your water's not flowing, the water has a chance of freezing. Overchilled. <laughs> exactly. And then you get a little split in your tube and you've got a, a whole lot of water running through a condo and it goes down as many floors as it needs to and it'll just it'll find any any place to get there. Have you dealt with glycol yet? Not yet. <laughs> it's messy. It's messy. Um, so, uh, you know, um, fuel tanks. So do you do oil fuel tanks? Yeah, I've done a, a few of those. Uh, luckily, well, luckily for me, they're empty when I look at them. Sure. Luckily for the other guys, it's empty. <laughs> um, 
but unluckily yeah. for the insurer. Yeah, unluckily yeah. for the insurer. But uh, for for those, I mean, it's I find it's a little easier on the mechanical side of things. It actually it ends up being a bit more environmental um, due to all the the damage that the oil causes. And like I said, you know, we're we're worried about the environment. We want to make sure we keep it clean. And once you get some oil there, you got to get it out. So you're looking at the mic, right? When you're looking at the tanks, the microbial, mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah, or even just, you know, again, um, someone's mishandled it and caused, started a crack. And yeah. as the crack uh, propagates or continues, then it might be months later that you actually see damage done. Um, but it could have it could have just been someone over tightening something and then fuel filters. Yeah. Right? yeah. Lots of times fuel filters. Yeah, you bet. Well, that's interesting. Um, before we wrap up here, I just wanted to kind of go over you guys have got like 18 employees here. Yep. Yeah. 18 employees. Uh, and we've got uh, 12 kind of out and about on the road. And then we've got uh, six kind of administration and project Mar- management, marketing. Yeah. And uh, how can people get in touch with you if they need to reach you? What's your, how do they get in touch with you? So they can email me. Uh, okay. If or they can call me. Um, so give them your, give them how they get right. you. So my email would be Dana Scholes at archonforensics.com, and it's D A Y N A S C H O L S at archonforensics.com. And just the regular. Archon website. And then the regular Archon website is www.archonforensics.com. And there is a dot between Dana. <laughs> so you forgot Dana dot schools, Dana right? Dana dot schools. I don't even know my own email. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, what about a 1-800 number? Do you guys have a 1-800 number? Uh, yes, we do. So it's uh, 1-888-272-6671. Thanks. And your marketing guy, if somebody needs to contact uh, your, your Archon for like they've got a, you know, they want to just find out what type of stuff you do that's we haven't covered, who would they get in contact yeah, with? Yeah, so our, our marketing guy here, it's Randy Henderson. Um, so if you just, if you call us and ask for Randy, you can get a hold of him and he's he's an awesome guy and he's great to talk to and he's he's very knowledgeable about what we uh, do here. Yeah, and if they were going to email him, it would be Randy.Henderson? It would be Randy.Henderson. Excellent. <laughs> All right, well, thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it and uh, hopefully we'll see you out at some scenes. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. All right, thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of WP Radio. We had such a great time recording this episode, so we hope you enjoyed listening as well. Please check in next month for another episode, and if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out at me at terry at oiaa.com. Thanks, everyone, and we'll talk to you soon. Are you an insurance adjuster actively adjusting claims? If so, we want you. The OIAA is a professional organization currently consisting of 1,800 claims professionals with its main focus on education, networking, and knowledge. We promote and maintain a high standard of ethics among insurance claims professionals. We work together with government departments and officials, governing bodies, members of other organizations, insurance companies, associations and fraternities, as well as the general public in matters connected with the business of insurance and insurance claims. We recognize the value of networking for education, 
advocacy, advancing professional standards, and offering mutual support. We provide networking, professional development, inside industry news, and support to insurance adjusters across Ontario. By joining our network of active and associate members, you receive a direct introduction to other members, our Without Prejudice magazine delivered to your door, discounts for all social and professional development events, knowledge from mixing with seasoned, experienced adjusters and with new up-and-coming professionals, and satisfaction knowing that you are an active participant in shaping claims adjustment and risk management services in Ontario. Most compelling of all is the price. Just for $50 a year plus HST, the value far outweighs the fee. Can you afford not to join us? Please visit our website to become a member and to review our calendar of events at www.oiaa.com.